0: having a hard time even collecting myself this morning. Um, The Lord is near. I think sometimes in my journey, I've been fooled by the emotion of the presence of God. And I've just been much more convinced that it's not it's more about a people crying out for that one thing, and that's to be with Jesus. And that just happened in this room. And so my, my hope and my prayer is that we can be a people that will live in that disposition all the time, and that we could do that together as a community. Well, friends, if you are new or visiting, my name is John Wayne McMahon. I'm one of the pastors here at Marvin, and We're excited and blessed to have you, especially if you're a guest. We don't take it granted that you would uh, be dragged here or come here willingly, however you ended up here, but spend time with us or join us online or watching later in the week. We are grateful to spend time and to worship alongside you. We are continuing a series. We're actually in the middle of a series called Jesus Together um, and if you haven't been here for the first couple of weeks, I think you'll be okay. Uh, you're going to learn some more and drop right into the middle of that. But just to sum up where we've been, in week one, we talked about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, kind of put our all of our cards on the table about what we believe about following Jesus. It's not just a surface level, like John Wayne went to college, student, like I check in every now and then, might know the teacher, kind of. Uh, student, but a disciple is a, uh, uh, sitting at the feet of the rabbi, spending every moment so that we could be with him, become like him, and do what he did in the world. And then last week we talked about through the lens of Paul and Ephesians of what it might look like when that community is focused singularly on Christ, growing up into the maturity of Christ, receiving the gifts of Christ, and to live truth with one another. In the midst of all of the truths that surround us, truths, living the one truth together has incredible power. Today, I hope to get practical about um, a movement in our history, at least in the Methodist Wesleyan history, that modeled this kind of community with a singular focus of following Christ called the class meeting. So we'll look at the, that through the lens of the gospel because Wesley methodists um, I love them because they don't make anything up. They just grab what was good from the past and bring it together. And Wesley saw in the Bible that there was a small group that Jesus put together called the disciples that lived out this community. And so the class meeting was built on that. So we'll talk about uh, the disciples, the small group. We'll talk about the class meeting, and we'll talk about what it looks like for Marvin leaning forward. So to do that, we start in Matthew chapter 16, and we'll be reading in verse 13. This is the declaration, the profession of the apostle Peter uh, as he declares who he believes Jesus is. And I think as a representative of the disciples makes a proclamation, Matthew 16, verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Then he ordered the disciples to not tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks again for your presence here with us. And I pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of this scripture, your holy word. Where we are empty, would you fill us? Where we are weak, would you strengthen us? Where we are wrong, would you correct us? And would you send us out once more? And God, I pray for myself that you'd speak through me or in spite of me, but may it be your message that's delivered. We love you and trust you. It's in Jesus' name. Let all God's people say, Amen. A couple of years ago, before the pandemic, what was that? I don't know, five years ago? To, who knows? COVID time, right? Uh, but before all of this started, uh, interestingly, I saw this CNN special of this new phenomenon of virtual reality church. CNN did this whole special, uh, and they were highlighting this pastor that traveled the country in his uh, trailer, and he would tell everyone about his church, and then on Sunday mornings, he would stand up in the living room area of his trailer, he'd put on his virtual reality goggles, and he would pastor to a gathering of thousands of people that would join in this virtual reality church from around the world, represented by avatars. You know what an avatar is? Not those weird blue guys that were in that funny movie a few years ago, but an avatar is like a, like a video game representative of you. It's like a symbol and you can create that to represent you or not represent you how you want. And so there's this phenomenon of this pastor in a trailer somewhere in, I don't know, Idaho, uh, leading and preaching to a group of people from around the world that are showing up behind a video game character. It's Fascinating, and I'm watching this, and I'm, and I'm one part like fascinated, and one part disturbed. Like this just sounds whack, right? Like I don't know how to do that. I don't get virtual reality. They didn't teach me that in seminary, so I'm not ready for that either. Um, but I just didn't know what to do with this, and there was a pit in my stomach that was beginning to build because something just didn't feel right about it. And then finally, the person doing the special asked the pastor, why do you think this is so powerful? Why do you think thousands are showing up for your virtual reality church? And the pastor said this, quote, well, I think relationships can be much more authentic because people can hide behind their avatar. There is a level of anonymity that makes people feel more comfortable. I hear from the grumbles, you find the irony in that statement, right? The irony in this statement that people are more authentic because they can give a false identity to everyone else, right? That's a ironic thing that is probably true. And it doesn't take virtual reality church for this to be our reality, if we're honest. Because in many ways, we hide behind a shell of ourselves, And we put an avatar forward that we want the world to see. It becomes like our Instagram profile walking around among us. We only tell people of our successes and not of our failures, our best qualities and none of our flaws, our successes, our our, uh, things that we have accomplished in our career, but never those places where we found anxiety, or desperation, or loneliness, or isolation, and we become a walking avatar that we have created, and no one knows us. As a matter of fact, we don't even know ourselves when we live in this reality. Well, friends, the last few weeks, we've been looking at what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be an apprentice of Jesus and to live in a community where not only is it okay but it's welcome to be fully known and fully loved by a community of believers and by the god of the universe and that's our reality and so we lean in that today to say we don't, we're not going to walk like avatars in the world The very model of apprenticeships came from the gospels and we see these disciples in the gospel of Matthew wrestling with being their true selves and understanding what God is doing all before them. And I want you to see this first small group in the lens of Matthew 16, because the first thing that happens, the first small group before any church pastor thought they were cool and dreamed up a small group happens when Jesus calls his disciples together. And Jesus calls together a small group and this Matthew 16 is a confession, a high point of that small group's journey together, but it's not the end of the story and you'll see that. Matthew 16 is one of the most pivotal chapters and moments in the gospel. This is the first time that anyone in Matthew's gospel has publicly made this strong profession that Jesus is the Messiah, especially in the way that Peter and I think the disciples through Peter do it. Now, Matthew narrating this, for those of us that read Matthew's gospel, we understand that because we see more than the characters in Matthew's gospel see. Because we start with a genealogy and see that Jesus is the answer of the great Jewish hope. We start with this proclamation of the angels as they come to Mary and Joseph. We know that there's something else cooking, but for the disciples, they're experiencing this in real time. And so they are walking along this journey. And for Peter and the disciples to make this proclamation at Matthew 16, that you're the Messiah, they are responding to what they have seen. No one to this point, no disciples, no teachers, no scribes or Pharisees, not Herod, not even John the Baptist makes a proclamation this strongly. The entire first half of the gospel is working up from Jesus calling his students, his disciples to come and follow him so that they might learn what it is that he is the Messiah. It is all leading up to Matthew 16. These first chapters are a public interaction of Jesus' ministry with the repetition over and over again of an inward and outward wondering curiosity of who is this man? As a matter of fact, Matthew's gospel repeats that phrase over and over again when he heals on the Sabbath, when he tells someone their sins are forgiven, when he tells the lame to get up and walk, when he casts out demons, The those that are close to him and those that are critical of them are wondering who is this man? And then Matthew 16 comes along. Jesus with his disciples in an intimate moment offers the question to them. Well, two questions. Who do people say that I am? What are you hearing out there, right? What's the rumblings about me? Acknowledging the general chaos and the misunderstanding around the mission in the public up to this point. And then he turns personal and he asks them, but who do you say that I am? And side note, there comes a point where we need to answer the second question ourselves. That we hear the first question. We grow up in church and we have experienced this or we come with a spouse and we know what people say about Jesus, but there comes a point where we have to answer that question ourselves. What do I believe? What do I say about this person, Jesus? And so Peter, who is often the outspoken one, the spokesperson of the disciples, and I don't think because of nobility. I think because of excitement and passion and the desire to be right even when it gets him in the wrong places. That's why I relate to him so well. He blurts out and, and think, thankfully in this opportunity, he says the right answer. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now consider the scene for a minute, especially in the series that we're in. These apprentices, these 12 called to follow a rabbi They know he is important. It's obvious from the very beginning. They know things that are being said about him as one who is important. But even more than that, they are nobodies in the world that would never have an opportunity to be with anyone like Jesus, like a a rabbi of his stature. These fishermen, they are the ones who got their GED in high school and went into work before they're 18, right? They are the least, the last lost. They are the hated ones, the tax collectors. They the zealots that the Jews hated, they are the ones that most culture would rather just forget. And so when this rabbi comes and says, follow me, they leave everything and they begin to follow. And that's exactly what they did. Through the gospels, they stayed with him at every waking moment, hanging on every single word, wondering what was happening because they wanted to be with him, become like him, and hopefully someday do what he did in the world. And on this journey, these 12 are meticulously thinking through everything that is going on. I love right before Matthew 16 and Matthew 15, they are in a field and Jesus is doing his public ministry and thousands are coming to Jesus. And the scripture tells us that he is healing the mute and the blind and the deaf and the paralyzed and casting out demons for days. It is the inbreaking of heaven that he is reversing the, the bad and the wrong and the death in the world so that there can be life right here in front of these disciples. And after a few days, Jesus goes, they look hungry. Why don't we feed them? And after the disciples have seen him heal the mute and the blind and the deaf and the paralyzed in response to Jesus going, they look hungry, let's feed them, what do they do? Uh, we don't have any food, Jesus, <laughs> right? These disciples are figuring it out. This small group is figuring this out in real time. And so Jesus feeds them. And I like to picture Matthew 16 right on the end of that, that this small group now is like, we're still missing it. What is happening? And they're sitting around a campfire and they're discussing it and they're sharing stories. Did you see what he said to so-and-so? Did you see how he corrected this? Did you see how he healed this? What did he say when he was talking to the woman? And they are just rumbling and And I love to picture Jesus just stepping into the campfire light and saying, hey, what are people saying about me? But what do you say about me? And Peter and the disciples respond and they say, you're the son of the living God, you're the Messiah. And they answer rightly. But what's fascinating about Matthew 16 is they don't live like that's the truth from that moment on. They have to figure out how to live in this reality. They blunder this over and over again. As a matter of fact, seconds later, Peter tries to correct the Messiah, the son of the living God, and Jesus calls him Satan. Satan. They blunder it. Time and time again, and Peter tries to cut off someone's head at the end when Jesus is getting arrested. Luckily, he only got a piece of the ear, right? And he denies him when the stakes are high, and he's worried about losing his life, and the disciples flee. And the Gospel of Matthew has this climax in the middle of the book, but then the rest of the book shows the disciples on a journey to fully grasp the fullness of Jesus the Messiah. But here's the critical part. They do it together around more campfires, in rooms, praying together, gathered when things go incredibly bad. In the Last Supper, they are together in the last moments before Jesus is arrested. And then after Jesus is killed, they are together trying to collect themselves and see what is happening, and how do we move forward? But later on, I love the Acts of the Apostles. How does it start? It starts with them together, like a campfire, waiting for power to come on high. And then the rest of the story is them learning how to live this out in community and to build more community like what they have experienced And for so many of us, we try to do this on our own and it's our Western culture. It's our individualistic uh, uh, society and culture that's around us. It's our upbringing. It's everything that we've experienced. But for some reason, we've adopted this idea that Christianity is a private affair of our own. And the problem is, is we might make it to right understanding that he's the Messiah, but in isolation, we don't live out what it looks like that he's the Messiah. And we need each other. And the Wesleyan Methodist movement understood that. If you're not Methodist, welcome. This is a Methodist church. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the Methodist movement, not as a way of saying this is better than all the other ways, But what I love about Wesley, John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement, what I love about Wesley and the other Methodists is they really didn't create a lot of stuff. They found things that worked and they found structure that would point them towards the direction that they were called to go. And so the class meeting was one of those movements. You're gonna get a little history this morning, but before you yawn too big or run for the door, church history, particularly our history, reveals God's story in a unique way and how we fit in it. It reminds us of who we are are and hopefully inspires us again of who we are becoming. And so the early Wesleyan Methodist movement started structures that are important for us, including the class meeting, but they didn't start there. They started with societies. What made the Wesleyan movement famous at first was going and preaching in the fields, when it was not that cool to leave the church, like the Wesleyans went out to bars and pubs and they begin to share the word. And not just the Wesleyans, we see a lot of moving in this direction, Whitfield and some of the early uh, Calvinists that we find in this country and the first great awakening are pastors and evangelists that are going out. And what Wesley and the Methodists do is that when they, Um, receive people giving their life to Christ, they would organize them first in societies, kind of like churches, and they would bring them together. But that wasn't the most important piece. Eventually, in the 1700s, they began to realize that we need to be in smaller community together. From the very beginning, Wesley knew that discipline was important. And when I say discipline, church, I'm not talking about how you put your kid in time out or how you think God looks at you when you did something wrong. That's not the discipline I'm talking about. From the beginning, the Methodists knew that how we disciplined, organized ourselves was very important because how we organize ourselves dictates how we move and where we're going. And they believed that from the very beginning. Early Methodism, see, had these two things that I want you to see. This gives us context for where we're headed. Early Methodists and Wesleyan preachers and teachers believed in two things. One was conversionism, And the second one was a high view of uh, sanctification. When I say conversionism, I'm talking about evangelical, this we believe that professing faith in Jesus, there's something that happens, that we are converted. You've heard that phrase, that new life is given to us. So it's not just I decide I'm gonna pick up religion today, but there's a movement of God either in an instant or over time where God's spirit comes alive in us and we are born again. You've heard that phrase. And the early Wesleyan movement had this evangelical belief that when we give our lives to Christ, the old is gone and the new is here. That it is no longer I that lives, but it's Christ that lives in me. That now I have new life and I have the very life of God through the power of the Holy Spirit in me so that I might walk in freedom. And they believed in new birth, that you must be born again like John 4 talks about with Nicodemus. But they also believed in sanctification, which is a big word to talk about that when we give our life to Christ and we are converted to follow Jesus, that is not an arrival point, it's a launching point. That it is the beginning, it is the threshold of God's love now working life in me as I walk with him. And so they wanted to hold these two things together as utmost important, to have a singular focus on holiness. How can we help people to see that there's new life in Christ, but also to help people to live their life walking in the life that's been given to them. And so they organized, they got in discipline. They put themselves in relationships that focused on this deeper work of taking hold of that which Jesus has taken hold of us. And this led to the creation of class meetings and bands. Now, class meetings, I've joked, two things we don't really care for, classes and meetings put together. It's not like, it's not what you think, it's more than that, and so I want you to stay with me. Can we work past the branding a little bit for a minute? And bands is not like what you see up here. I'm in a band, but I'm not in a band like that, okay? I can't carry a tune in a bucket, right? but I'm in a band. I wanna tell you about those two things very quickly. The class meeting historically were 10 to 12 men and women meeting together and testifying to what Christ was doing in their life consistently and every week, every week. They would get together. They would testify to what God's doing in their life. They would pray for one another, hold one another accountable and live out their faith. Band groups were for those that wanted to take on the deeper work of holiness. Three to four men meeting with men, three to four women meeting with women, and they would gather regularly and they would confess sin to one another and pray forgiveness over one another so that they might do the deeper work of holiness. And I'm not gonna talk about bands, but they're starting to show up at our church. You're gonna hear more about them as they roll out. The band that I am in has changed my life. And in seasons, it's actually held my life together by having people that know everything about me and still love me. And class meeting is an introduction to that of what it looks like to be in relationship with one another. These were so important to the Methodist movement. At one point, in order to be a Methodist, you had to be in a class or you weren't a Methodist. So if you wanted to show up on church on Sunday, you had to bring a ticket that you got from class earlier in the week showing that you went to class or you wouldn't come into church. Now, listen, I'm not gonna bring everything back I think there are some things that probably won't work today, right? But they had such a commitment to being in relationship and focused on walking in holiness that there was nothing else that was more important. These groups existed to encourage one another in love, to provide accountability, and to not just talk about the Christian life, but to really live it. One scholar puts it this way Andrew Thompson. The class meeting was not just a means for facilitating mutual accountability. It was also a communal means of grace whereby men and women came to experience the reality of sanctification and the myriad levels of transformation that entailed it. Let me talk about what this means. What Thompson is saying is that when we gather in a group where we have a singular focus on holiness and growing in the love of Jesus, and we testify to one another about what God's doing in our life, it is not just a support group, though it is that. It actually becomes something in which God's grace is poured into in a supernatural way where individual lives are actually transformed instead of just patted on the back y'all, we are facing things in this world where we need more than a pat on the back. And these groups are a location through which lives are being filled with God's grace, where things are being laid down which don't belong. And it becomes a location where God's love is present in ways that it can't be otherwise outside of these characteristics of a group. Means of grace. A 19th century American Methodist preacher puts it this way. In these class meetings, many seekers of religion had found them the spiritual birthplace of their souls into the heavenly family and their dead souls made alive to God. The founders and, and early leaders of American Methodism, Thomas Koch and Francis Asbury, believed in this movement of community of class meetings so much that they would write this in one of the annual book of disciplines. They said this, we have no doubt but meeting of Christian brethren for the exposition of scripture texts may be attended with their advantages, but the most profitable exercise of any is a free inquiry into the state of the heart. Now, you probably didn't spend all day reading 1700s Englishmen, so let me translate a little bit. What they're saying is, as preachers, way more important than coming on Sunday and hearing the exposition of even scripture, though it's important and though it is high and though it is something we should do, they are saying more important than that is being in community where you can give a free inquiry of the state of your heart and your heart in God so that you could be fully known and fully loved so that you could be open for what God has for you. The class meeting was the heart of the Methodist revival. In 1776, Methodists accounted for 2.5% of all religious followers in the colonies, the second smallest of any of the major denominations at that time. And by 1850, 70 years later, Methodists comprised of 34.2% of all of those that adhere to religious movement in the US, which was 14% higher than the next largest group. It is because, it's not a stretch to say it's because they were being organized in community that helped them to live out their faith. As a matter of fact, one of Wesley's very good friends for most of their life, they had a little falling out at one point, came back later, is George Whitfield one of the great stewards of the Great Awakening and he would preach to thousands and travel. And at the end, he, uh, the, the historians would talk about his life of bringing tens of thousands of people to Christ and near his deathbed, he would say, I'm paraphrasing, he would say, yes, but they all fell like sand to the ground because I didn't establish them in community like Wesley did. And he looked at what Wesley did, much less of a preacher Wesley was. Much less success than Whitfield. And he looked at his friend Wesley and he said, That guy put people in community and that made all the difference. So this is a different kind of meeting. And I wanna talk about what it might look like for our time and for our day. We're not gonna give tickets out. We're not gonna kick you out of church. We're not gonna tell you you're not Methodist if you're not in a class, but they are important. And it's something I would like for us to pray about and lean into. And I would at least like us to be critical of the relationships we have in our life that resemble this kind of transformative community no matter where we are. But the class meeting is... Different than most of our small groups. It's it's different than our Sunday schools. Now listen, please listen clearly about what I'm about to say. This is the one that gets everyone a little agitated. These are different than Sunday schools. And what I'm about to say does not mean that your Sunday school class does not have value, does not bring life, does not bring transformation. I'm not saying that Sunday schools are not good, but in general, Sunday schools have a different approach than class meeting. In general, Sunday schools can be about a teacher, a lecture, like what's happening right here and about learning information and about hopefully trying to apply that to our life. But most of it is about learning right things. And that is important in the church. We need to know right doctrine. We need to know right belief. We need to study the scriptures in a right way. But what class meeting tries to do is to say, our singular focus is not on learning right information, but it's on living the way of Jesus. That's our singular focus, is that God's love would be so poured into our hearts that we might experience deep holiness. In our Sunday schools, go look at our descriptions. I'm not trying to offend us in our Sunday schools, but they don't have a singular focus of following after Jesus in this way of holiness, of having his love shed abroad in our hearts. And so class meetings, instead of getting together on a curriculum or studying a book of the Bible, we get together and we answer questions that are simply, how is my life in God this week? How am I experiencing Jesus's love in my life? And how is his love compelling me to love others? What does it look like over the last few days? Not just what does it mean to be a Christian, but how am I living out the Christian calling in my family and in my marriage and as a dad and as a pastor, as a banker, teacher, as a stay-at-home parent? How am I living this out? So the groups are different than what we've experienced. They're not just informational groups They're not just affinity groups where we get together and watch football together and maybe talk about Jesus or we play this game together because we all like this game. These groups have a singular focus of walking in holiness. They're formational, meaning when we consistently meet together and we yield to the accountability of a group, we become formed by it. This isn't a Christian thought. This is psychology. This is, this is uh, science, that we become formed by living in this. And what happens over time is incredibly formational. If we show up and testify, what happens in the very beginning is I'll show up to class and I'm like, oh goodness, what happened this week? Let's see, on Tuesday, my kid punched me in my face and I didn't yell at him, so that was gracious. I think God was present Uh, I experienced God in this meeting or interaction and and we try to remember what's happening. But as we show up and we begin to testify over and over again, what happens is something flips and we begin to see God at work in the very moment and very experience of life. And so we walk into that Tuesday and we go, I felt peace that didn't make sense when my kid punched me in the face. Does that not happen to y'all, just me? But we get to the day where we're like, I can see God here and I can't wait to get to my group to testify what that very thing is or in the moment I was about to look at that thing or click on that thing or say that thing or text that person back and I knew I was going to have to share that with my group later and so I decided I'm not going to walk through that because I have people who love me and people I would have to confess that to later on, Right? And so I wanna walk and pursue holiness. And as we do, we become more present to what God's doing in our life and around us. Not only is it formational though, it's transformational where we become positioned in God's love so that we might become one of his fully. And so the example I use often of a transformational question is if I were to ask you, what does it mean to be a son or daughter of God? You could quote me scripture you could give me right answers that would pass a quiz or a test. But if I were to ask you, how are you living this week like a child of God? That's a game changer, right? And as we walk in this, we actually begin to see God's characteristics coming to life in us and seeing the potential and possibility of what it means to yield further to his spirit. It's transformational. It's evangelistic, because we wanna take these groups and we wanna put them in homes and we wanna spread them out in the community. And some may end up on campus for childcare, for practical reasons, but we wanna spread them out and put them all over the place. And we wanna make them diverse. We love to gather in our own demographics, right? We love to gather with, uh, Lauren and I have young children, so we wanna be with other adults that have young children because we're in the same season of life. And what, ro- what we're robbed of in that journey is people that have already made it through the young children stage, Right? I joked a couple of weeks ago, I actually don't need much from y'all with young children. Y'all are just lying if you say you figured it out already. It's the same thing with our faith. I need somebody that's walked down this journey and has faced hardship that's had their marriage on the very thread of non-existence and God has brought them through it. I need someone who has faced the diagnosis. I need someone who's lost the prodigal child. I need someone who has been down that journey to walk with and to pray with me and to show me things that I'm not even thinking about and to remind me of gratitude and remind me how faithful Jesus is. I need the new believer to remind me how fun it was when it started, right? Right? to remind me that this thing was fun at some point. Some of you, come on, I'm preaching to you. Some of you, you're like, yeah, Lord, I'm tired. Yeah. It becomes evangelistic because once a diverse group of people are unified in the one hope of the Lord and they're positioned throughout a community, they become the leaven that brings life to the bread. They become that that is out in the community and they wanna share it with others. It's evangelistic. So what are we doing? Because I've already gone over time here. (sighs) Amen, thank you. I got one, the rest of y'all, sorry. I got one opinion. Starting last fall, we began to train leaders for these groups. We didn't wanna program it, so we haven't talked about it very much. And so we spent 10 to 12 weeks with leaders and began to pour into them and talk about what this looks like and prepare them for what, that will, um, what this journey is going to be. And in the next couple of weeks, one starts tomorrow. And in the next couple of weeks, there's four groups that we're getting ready to launch to invite people to be in. There's still room in some of those groups And even now we're filling another incubation leadership group. We're getting more people involved in this way to train them throughout the spring. And we will repeat this process as we begin to invite people on this journey. What does it mean for you? Well, listen, if you say, John Wayne, I'm already in Sunday school and this group and that group and knitting and Mahjong and football, whatever y'all are doing And you're like, I just don't have time for any of that. I hear you. I just wanna challenge you to find this kind of community, even if it's in the groups that you're in. If you're in a Sunday school of 50, pull three or four aside and say, can we be on this journey together to know each other, to help each other on this way? But for all of us, I I want you to consider, especially if you're not in community, would you consider giving this a shot? If this is what it means to be apprentice of Jesus, is this, if this is what can happen in community, and if this is an opportunity to try and walk on this journey, will you give this a shot? And so following our service, um, when we're finished, there's clipboards, one here and two on the way out. And all it says at the top is, I am interested in class meeting, okay, church? You're not saying I will do this for the rest of my life. You're not saying I will lead it forever. You're not signing up for seminary. Some of you act like that, all right? It is just saying I'm interested in this. And so just give me your name and cell phone and email and I will follow up with more information about what this can look like. Friends, lives are being changed already in the last few months on this journey. Testimony of new strength in marriages testimony of people learning to pray out loud for the first time and for others, testimony of people learning to share their faith in new and unique ways. And I've worked with these groups for years and I've seen all kinds of transformation. Next week, I hope you're here because I have some dear friends of ours that are coming to share about their journey of faith through community like this. And their story is one of the most powerful that I've ever seen and been Kind of a part of from a, a distance, and so i 'm excited for you to get to hear from them. but let me close with this: You know what happens when you live as an avatar in the world? You build this version of yourself that 's unrecognizable even to yourself. I was thinking about this week. Does anybody play video games in the room? Thank you at eight thirty, there was one, and like I felt very alone and so but anyways, I don't play a lot of games, but I, play, I I played athletics for a long time, and so I love sports games, and I play Madden as my game. Like, it, it's made me, yeah, thank you, brother, amen. <laughs> And so, what I love to do is create a player, right? And I create this player in every version of Madden since like 96 or whatever. And uh, it, it's always been J. Dubs McMahon. If you don't get it, ask me afterwards. And um, I create this quarterback who was like 6'5, 275 pounds, but ran like a 4 two forty, right? That could run you all over. You can do this in video games, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, J-Dubs McMahon, listen, follow along here, not Josh Allen. And so I'm a Cowboys fan too, so you're not gonna get anywhere that way, all right? And so the problem is, is we do this. We create a version of ourselves of this dreamland that we want to be, and this is what we put forward. Happy marriage, perfect kids, reading philosophy in our spare time, Trading stocks, perfect balance of work and kids. Grandparents, always there when you need to, but never there too much, right? We always, we, we always don't wanna be those grandparents and we end up being that, right? I've talked with others, I'm not a grandparent, but I've heard it. The problem is, is that when there's a huge gap from our avatar to reality, that gap, our soul takes on all the consequences, we develop body image issues because we don't think we're what we were supposed to be or the world tells us. We develop insecurity that's crippling or anxiety that comes out of nowhere. It doesn't even seem to, to be rooted in anything. Or we become failures in our minds. We play the comparison game and we never have enough money or we're terrible parents or we're lazy or we're just not making anything of ourselves. When we live in a dreamland, we actually do not know ourselves and what God is creating us to be. But if we would gather in a space where we could not only possibly be fully known, but fully loved with a community and fully loved before God as we walk this way of Jesus, then I believe something incredible is possible. And that's my hope for you, is that you would find a community that would love you and through their love, you would know the love of God that doesn't look at your pile of garbage and see that before he sees you. You are loved and we need a community that will help us live that very truth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let all God's people say, amen. I wanna invite you to stand. We're gonna profess our faith with the Apostles' Creed. You'll see the words on the screen. Let's say them together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord.